If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel. We return to 2 Samuel after a few weeks off during Christmas season and when I was out of town. We are now back. If you may recall, it was three weeks ago that we left off in chapter 19. We didn't read or go through all of chapter 19. And so we're going to pick up at the very end of chapter 19. That is at verse 41. And then read through the entirety of chapter 20. And I would encourage you to give your full attention to the reading of God's Word. For the Word of God is completely authoritative. The Word of God is completely inerrant. And the Word of God is completely sufficient. 2 Samuel 19, beginning at verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? <clears throat> and the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king. And in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now there happened to be there a worthless man, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. And the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. <coughs> then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him, Joab's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him 
with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of beth And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of beth They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart. And they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it, that I should swallow up and destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem, the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaniah, the son of Jehadiah, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Alihud, was the recorder. And Sheba was secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira, the Jairite, was also David's priest. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us. That as we read it, contemplate about it, that we would be shown your mercy and grace. That we would know the Lord Jesus Christ better. That we would know who we are and of our need for you. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. The new year is a time for optimism. Starting things anew. This time, things will be different. This time, I'll stay on my diet. This time, I'll get done all of the projects that have been piling up. 
This time I'll get all my schoolwork done much earlier than the day it's due. But although the year is new, you are not. Don't expect things to change just because a date has come. Real change is not a matter of trying harder or getting a new chance. Real change only comes by grace. As we come to this text this morning, I have to confess, I almost didn't want to preach it. If you look at other preachers who have gone through the book of 2 Samuel, there are several of them, many of them, who skip right over this chapter. Because this chapter seems so... I've been there. I've done that. Rebellion against David, check. Tough times for David, check. Division in Israel, check. It seems repetitive, unoriginal. But this passage is important for us. It shows us the same old problem that we have. We've seen it before. It reminds us that sin is the enemy that we must fight and that it is not original. And it reminds us that the solution to sin is not something newfangled. It is the same old gospel story that has been preached for millennia. And so let's begin then by looking at the root of sin. This chapter shows us the root of sin, and in a word it is captured, pride. Now, remember the context of where we are. It's been a few weeks since we visited with David and his men. At this point, David is returning to Jerusalem. There was some hesitation among Israel, and Judah had to actually be asked to join the procession back to Jerusalem. So it's not as if this was a, a clear and convincing return to Jerusalem at the outset. But eventually, all of Judah came to come with David back to Jerusalem, and half of Israel gathered together to join in. We see that in verse 40 of chapter 19. And looming on the horizon is a conflict waiting to happen. There's been a history of strife between the tribe of Judah and the ten tribes of Israel. You remember Ishbosheth, Saul's son, setting up a rival kingdom. You remember Abner, Saul's general, keeping divided the people of God. You remember Absalom, dividing God's people and rebelling. And what we see here this morning is a small issue that gets blown out of proportion. We would expect that things would be good again. David is back. He's the king. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. We would have expected that those who had rebelled would be humble. They would be gracious. They would know that they had made a mistake. That they'd backed the wrong horse. That they had done wrong to David. But the truth is, they're not. And things aren't good again. Because that's how life is. You know, life doesn't repeat what's in the movies. 
When you watch a movie and you see as it gets near the end of the show, you just know everything is going to turn out right. They're going to solve all the problems. You look and you say, he is going to marry her. And she is going to marry him. And they're going to have wonderful kids and a dog that never makes a mess. And life is going to be grand. Well, that's not how life is, is it? And it's good for us to know this. And we see this here in the scriptures. Israel comes to David with a strong accusation in verse 41. They say to David, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away? Now imagine that. David has just been victorious and he crosses the Jordan and the accusation is that somehow Judah has kidnapped him. And they're keeping Israel from him. Now, it's not a matter of David showing favoritism here. This is all a matter of pride and privilege. Of who gets to be first. Of who gets to say, we are the greatest. Notice the overboard language that they use. Notice how Israel assumes the worst of Judah. Now, Judah responds in kind. They respond in a way to rub salt in the wound. They say, well, David is our close relative. Now, you don't need to be with David near the Jordan to understand what's going on here. Have you ever had occasion where in your household one of the siblings says something to another sibling and that sibling responds in such a way that is perfectly crafted to most annoy the other sibling. And then when chaos breaks out, they look at you and they say, What? What did I say? I didn't do anything. I didn't say anything, right? That's what's going on here. They bristle at the accusation here. They say, have we eaten anything at the king's expense? Has he given us a gift? Because you see, what's behind here is not just an accusation that they've kidnapped David, but this answer tells us that Israel also accused them of being favored, of getting gifts, of taking advantage of the king. How do you respond when someone is harsh toward you? Do you follow the counsel of Scripture? If there is a Bible verse for you to memorize in 2022, it's the proverb that says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. That's quite applicable today. There, there's your advice for all of your social media interactions for all of 2022. A soft answer turns away wrath. But what we see here is this is a matter of the heart between the men of Israel and the men of Judah. It's not a logical discussion. It's a tit for tat that like we see among children. Israel responds to Judah saying, we are the king's close relative. And they say, well, we are ten times bigger than you. We have ten times more share." And by the way, we were first in telling him he should come back. That's what we see in verse 43. But Judah won't let it go. We don't know exactly what they responded with the last time, but we know it was worse because the Bible tells us so. In verse 43, Judah responds with something that is even fiercer. 
All of this is just wounded pride. I want to be first. I want to be on display. That's not just our culture. That is sinful humanity. That was the first sin of Satan, pride. And the first sin of Adam in the garden, I will be like God. And over and over again we see this in the Bible. <coughs> it was the Pharisees' sin. It's what kept them from seeing that Jesus was the Messiah. Because they did not want to give up their place of prominence. It was pride. And the sin of pride is what divided New Testament churches. Read the epistles of Paul. When they should have gone out bringing the gospel to a watching and lost world, they were bickering among themselves as to who was better and who was first. So search your own heart. Pride is a sin that gains sway and makes excuses for itself. It causes problems in families, churches, Nations, be vigilant against that sin. And as it always does, sin grows. Because one of the greatest lies that we believe about sin is that we can stop sin. That it will only go so far and no further. But the Bible tells us that sin is uncontrollable. It is not a pet that we can control. No, it is a raging fire out of control. And that's what happens here. The confusion caused by pride gives an opportunity to scoundrels to make more evil. And so we are introduced to Sheba. We don't know exactly who Sheba was. He was probably a prominent military man. Because if he weren't, no one would have followed him. When privates stand up and say, everybody follow me, nobody gets in line. But if a full colonel or a general says, we're going this way, people follow. But there is no doubt about Sheba's character. Right away we're told what kind of a person he is in verse 1 of chapter 20. He is a worthless man. Now that sounds bad, but I have to tell you, the Hebrew is worse than the English. Because the word that is translated worthless man here means a man of Belial. That is, a man of the devil. That's what the Hebrew means literally. That's why he's worthless. He's wicked. With that introduction, we know that Sheba is up to no good. We know he's going to use the sin that is out there in the air for further wickedness. And that's exactly what happens. Sheba plays on the wounded pride of the people of Israel, and he does what seems unthinkable. Another revolt in verses 1 and 2. Now at this point, we think, didn't we just see this story? And didn't we see it by someone who had a much better chance of success the king's son what is Sheba thinking here that this could possibly work well the answer is he's not thinking his pride is also at work he wants to be first he wants 
to be the king. And he has no real claim to the throne. He's not from the royal family. After all, we didn't even know who he was until this point. We might have expected a rebellion from Joab or from Abishai or maybe even one of the priests or someone at least whom we had been introduced to by name. But not Sheba. That's what pride does. It makes us think more about ourselves than others. Resisting sin is not thinking that you are less. It's thinking less about yourself. And this is a real problem here. This rebellion is not a fake problem. David understands this. He says in verse 6, things will be worse than they were before if we let Sheba get away with this. So a shouting match, now get this, about who gets to be more prominent in backing David leads to a rebellion against David. Does that make any sense at all? Has anything really changed? Didn't they learn from the previous rebellion? The answer is no. They should have learned, but their hearts were the same. This new year, don't focus on fresh opportunities, but instead focus more on your heart. Seek the Lord in prayer. Hear from the Lord in His Word. And the change you do want in your life can happen. Then there's a second scene. It's again familiar to us in which we see the fruit of sin. If the root of sin is pride, the fruit of sin is death. We once again see how sin bears fruit. Sin is not something that is theoretical. No, people get hurt by sin. Maybe you know that very well. You've been hurt by others. Hurt so badly that you don't know if you will ever recover. We almost expect what's coming here in chapter 20. We saw it back in chapter 19 when David gave Amasa Joab's job. So David tells the new commander, Amasa, to gather the troops. David knows that a delay can be dangerous. After all, he himself benefited from Absalom's delay. And so he gives Amasa three days to gather the army and pursue Sheba. But then something happens. Well, actually, nothing happens. And that's the problem. We don't know why Amasa could not do what David wanted. Maybe he was just a bad commander. After all, he only fought in one battle and he lost the battle. Or maybe the people were not exactly as thrilled as David was that Amasa was the commander and so they didn't flock to his banner. Either way, David has to improvise, we see here in verse 6. Now notice <coughs> what David does. He again jumps over Joab to his brother, Abishai. You know, Mr. Off with his head. That's who David turns to. And he tells Abishai, take the crack troops, the royal guard, and go and end this. Because David knows if Sheba can get to a fortified city, the rebellion can drag on and on. Ironically, that's exactly what Sheba does. He runs to a walled city. 
We see that in verse 14. But this is the opportunity that Joab is looking for. Notice how the men are described. In verse 7, there went out after him Joab's men. Not Abishai's men. Not David's men. Not Amasa's men. Joab's men. And so, Joab goes out with them, just like a regular soldier we see in verse 8. He puts on an ordinary uniform and goes out and just says, I'm just along for the ride. Sure. We'll come back to that in a moment. And so Amasa then comes up, I guess he figures better late than never, presumably to take command back. He's probably looking for Abishai to say, okay, I'm in charge now. David's put me in charge. Let me take the reins. And the narrator gives us a great amount of detail to show that Joab was deceptive and that Amasa never saw it coming. Now, you may wonder, what is this business with the grabbing of the beard? Because you may, if, if you're a gentleman with a beard and you have a young child or a grandchild, you know what they like to do with beards. They like to try to separate your beard from your face, to pull it off. That's not what Joab is doing here. What Joab is doing is kind of the ancient equivalent in Israel of shaking hands. And you may wonder why people started shaking hands. And you lefties may wonder why does everyone shake right-handed. And that's because when you put out your right hand and you show there's nothing in it, you are no danger or threat. There's a reason why the Latin word for left is sinister. Because a left-handed person could hide a weapon behind their back. You would think they were safe and they would get you. We have a couple of instances of that exactly happening in the Bible. And so Joab comes up and he grabs his beard, Amasa's beard to kiss him. And you could imagine Amasa seeing Joab come is going to be a little bit suspicious. You and I are already suspicious of Joab. But Amasa's faced with him and he knows what happened to Abner and he knows what happened to Absalom. You don't come within arm's reach of Joab if he's got a knife in his hand. You don't do it. But Joab acts friendly. And then Joab does, well, what Joab does. In verse 10, he grabs him by the beard with the right, and in that description we saw his sword had fallen out, so he didn't have it in his hand, but we are not told that he picked it up with his left, and he strikes, and he only has to strike once. This is the second time Joab has done this. He doesn't have to strike twice, because one blow is enough, and all of Amasa's insides are on his outsides. Now, I'm going to spare you the graphic details of that, but it's a bad blow. Joab is serious, deadly serious. Now you might say, why would we expect anything different of Joab? This is who he is. Amasa is in the way, and then Joab gets rid of him, so he's not in the way anymore. But let me ask you this, why would you expect anything different from your sin? Why would your anger against a sibling this time be different? Why would going to that place on the internet bring a different result this time? Why would that sarcastic remark to your spouse bring about a different result? The answer is, it's not. 
It won't. Your hope is not in sin being different this time. But in going to Jesus and begging Him to take your sin away. To cleanse you of those thoughts, those words, those actions. That is your hope. Well, if we're not shocked by Joab, certainly everyone else is not either. For Joab, it's business as usual. He sticks Amasa, and then, without a word, he's off to the next item on the agenda. No discussion, no remorse, nothing. The end of chapter 10 is, he and his brother go off in pursuit of Sheba. But that's also true of others around Joab. Look at verse 11. One of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Nothing to see here, guys. Go. And now I want you to picture Amasa lying in pain in a pool of his own blood, dying in the middle of the road. And the call is not to help him. It's not to bring justice to Joab. No, it's to ignore Amasa. And the picture we get is gruesome. It's like when you're on I-10 and there's a bad wreck. And the cars line up behind it, not because it's blocked, but because everybody's rubbernecking. You know, as they drive by, they've got to slow down and they've got to look and see how bad the bad car wreck is. Sometimes people even get in a wreck, hit the car ahead of them, because they're not paying attention, because they're looking off to the side of the road. That's what everybody's doing here. And that's a problem for the army. You've got to get the army up north. And it's slow going. Every guy that walks by is stopping and taking a look and making a comment. and They can't get the army moving. And so the call that goes out is, whoever literally takes delight in Joab, and who is for David, follow Joab. Not Abishai. Joab. And when Amasa's body is slowing down the army, Joab's man has a solution. He'll take him and Joab's sin and throw him off into the field and put a covering over him. Nothing to see here. Move along. He covers up what Joab has done so that others don't have to have their conscience pricked by seeing it. Don't be fooled. They all know what's happened. Just now, they're free to ignore it. What happens when you see sin? Do you look away? Pretend it isn't there? Or do you graciously and gently intervene, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 6? One of the worst things about sin is that everyone wants to ignore it and hope it will go away. But it doesn't. This year, resolve not to look away from your sin or the sin of others. Instead, go to Jesus. Sin won't go away, but Jesus' blood will atone for sin. Well, we've seen the root of sin. And the fruit of sin. Now we see the result of sin. Judgment. 
One of the saddest things about sin is that its result is not limited to the sinner. A father's sin affects his whole family. A pastor or an elder's sin affects the whole church. A governor's sin affects his whole state and the president's the entire nation. Sin's ugliness spills over everywhere. We see this clearly in the result of David's sin. Back in verse 3 of chapter 20, we see it in the story of the concubines. Do you remember the concubines? They were left behind when David fled Jerusalem from Absalom. The narrator wants us to see this. He makes it stand out here. Before he gets into all the military maneuvering and the murder and the pursuit, right up at the front of this chapter, he shows us about these women. These women had been abused by Absalom in his attempt to gain power. But this was also part of the judgment for David's sin that God had pronounced against him in chapter 12. And so this is a sad story with no happy ending. These women had their days and lives of joy and prominence turned to gray days of suffering. You may identify with this. You could tell me about your suffering because of the sins of others against you. You may want to curse those who have hurt you, to change the past, but you can't. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus specializes in the brokenhearted. He lived and died to wipe away the tears of all who trust in Him. Will you trust Him now? Will you find hope in the ashes of the bad things of life? Because Jesus never fails. We see a similar story of suffering in the town of Abel. Sheba comes to this city to escape from David's men. His rebellion is a flop. Only his family, that is his extended family or clan, is willing to follow him. It starts out all of Israel is leaving. But now it's just his extended family. It's as if I said, down with the United States. Texas, all Texas, we have no portion in the United States. We're going to be independent. And 15 minutes later, it's me and my wife and my four kids. One of whom is not even a Texas resident. Not a big issue for national security. That's what's going on here. Sheba's rebellion is a flop. But he knows that a walled city is hard to take. Joab will have to starve him out. Or he'll have to take months building a siege ramp to take the city. Maybe Sheba can wait them out. It was not unknown, unheard of in the ancient world that a besieging army would leave and lose the battle, not because they were harmed or because of casualties, but because they got tired of waiting around for the city to surrender. That's Sheba's plan. But the ones who suffer here are the townspeople. They're the ones caught in the middle. And so an old woman will come back to her in a moment. She knows this. 
she says, we are going to be swallowed up in verse 19. Sin always affects others. There is no victimless sin. It spreads its tentacles and destroys everything in its way. Remember that the next time you are tempted. Think about that at the time of decision. Sin has a price. It costs the Lord Jesus Christ His life. God Himself had to die to deal with sin. Well, this wise woman, like in chapter 14, the wise woman from Tekoa, she knows all of this and she has a plan. It's very interesting that the wise people in 2 Samuel have no good solutions. They only have clever options. We saw this in Jonadab and his counsel to Amnon. We saw it from the woman from Tekoa with Joab. And now this woman knows who she's dealing with. She says in verse 16, Get me Joab. And she says to him, Do you really want to destroy this city? And then Joab's answer in verse 20 almost makes us laugh. Who? Me? Oh, I would never do anything like that. I'm a teddy bear. I wouldn't harm a fly. Yeah, right, Joab. Wipe, wipe Amasa's blood off your sword first before you tell us how kind you are. But Joab is nothing if practical. And so he doesn't want to lose men in battle. He doesn't want to wait for the city to surrender. He wants to go back to David with a story of success. So the mutually beneficial solution is actually to execute judgment on the worthless man, Sheba. Sheba must have thought he was safe, at least for the time being. He would never have guessed that justice would have caught up with him in the person of a woman from Abel. But there it is. She goes to the people. They agree. And Sheba's head is in a bucket. I wonder what Abishai said after that. He finally got his head that he'd been asking for. This is perhaps the most important lesson we can learn about sin. You can never escape judgment for sin. You may avoid it for a time. You may think it's far in the past, never to be remembered, but God's judgment is unstoppable. He never forgets. He cannot ignore sin. Be sure that your sin will find you out. Never forget that. The only hope you have is in Jesus. In the work of Jesus Christ, God does take your sin and put it as far as the east is from the west. He never remembers your sin anymore because your debt has been paid in full. That is your hope. So this chapter, yet again, shows us that sin is horrible. That we are all guilty of it. That its fruit is death and destruction. That you cannot escape sin's judgment. But you can have hope. Sure hope. 
Sin cannot conquer Jesus. Jesus went to the cross and died, but he rose again. He was victorious over all his enemies and your enemies, sin included. When you are forced to look at the darkness of sin, it is to make you fix your eyes on Jesus. If you will trust him, he will save you. If you believe that he is the Son of God and your Savior, you will be free from sin, both its judgment and its power. He is your hope. Trust Him right now. Let's pray.